Remain standing for our gospel lesson, also our sermon text from John chapter 12. Pay close attention because this is God's gospel. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Thus far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for your word. And we know that we can stand on it, God, because it is truth. And we ask that in the next few minutes that you would impress upon us the gospel and that Jesus is the King and our Passover Lamb and what that means. Help us to believe it and to live in terms of it as we go forth from here today. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 12. And we'll begin in verse 12, John 12, 12. With the exception of the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus, no event in his life is better known than his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before he died on Good Friday. And yet, Few incidents from his life are more widely misunderstood than his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Verse 16 says that even the disciples failed to understand the meaning of what was going on. They only began to comprehend the significance of what happened here after Jesus was raised from the dead, after he was glorified. So what's going on in this story? What's it? mean? We know that it has some symbolic features. What's Jesus saying by riding in to Israel's capital city on a donkey during Passover week, leading up to Passover? Well, let's get into the text, get the text before us again. John 12, verses 12 and 13. The next day, that is the day after Mary anointed Jesus with oil in Bethany, not too far from Jerusalem. The next day, a great multitude had come to the feast. 
and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Him and they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! The King of Israel. Now before we consider what's going on here, what's being said, and what it all means, just consider for a moment how unusual this scene is on the face of it when you consider the whole ministry of Jesus. Jesus never makes Himself the center of attention like this. In fact, we often find Him even trying to hide His Messiahship. Even telling people not to, not to go spread the news. He doesn't want people to know about His miracles sometimes because He doesn't want to be viewed as Israel's King just yet in that kind of a way, in that public of a way. But now He appears to be celebrating and advertising His kingship. So what's going on? Why the discrepancy? Now I mentioned already that this story is often misunderstood. So first, let's talk about what's not going on. Jesus is not trying to become Jerusalem's celebrated king. That's not His goal. This is how some Bible readers and Bible scholars interpret or misinterpret this passage. They assume that Jesus is making one last attempt to gain a following. He's giving Jerusalem a final chance to follow Him and make Him their recognized and celebrated Messiah. The hostility of the Jerusalem leaders against Jesus had reached its climax. The writing was on the wall. And the moment of his death, the hour of his death, was rapidly closing in. If Jesus doesn't become Israel's recognized and celebrated king soon, it'll be too late. So Jesus goes all in. He lays it all on the line with his triumphal public entry. Now according to this view, Jesus only abandons that plan when the cries of Hosanna turn into demands for His crucifixion, as they do quite quickly. That's when Jesus was forced to abandon that plan to become Israel's celebrated king. He abandoned that, and He had to accept His fateful death on a cross. But there are several things wrong with this way of reading this story. The Gospels make it clear that Jesus never had any intention of coming to Jerusalem to be crowned as Israel's celebrated king. He knew that wouldn't happen. Why then did Jesus enter Jerusalem as He did on Palm Sunday? Well, He came to Jerusalem to die. Specifically, to die on a cross for the salvation of His people. He didn't come to Jerusalem to be crowned as Israel's celebrated king. He came to Jerusalem to be crowned as Israel's crucified king. That's plan A. Dying on a cross at the hands of leaders of the leaders of Jerusalem was not plan B. 
Jesus came to earth specifically to die. And now he comes to Jerusalem specifically to die. Jesus explained this to his disciples just two days earlier. As they were making their way to Jerusalem for the final week of Jesus' mortal life. The conversation is recorded, not in John, but in Mark 10, 32-34. I'll read it for you, you don't have to turn there. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid, because they were going to Jerusalem, And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Listen how clear he is. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. That was right before they, they went to, to Bethany and, and had the meal where Mary anointed him. That's why I tend to think that Mary actually believed this, as we talked about last week. So that's what Jesus said just two days before he entered into Jerusalem triumphantly with shouts of Hosanna. And this wasn't the first time either that Jesus predicted his suffering and death at the hands of the Jerusalem religious leaders. It was at least the third time. Jesus didn't enter Jerusalem with fanfare in hopes of winning the masses over. His triumphal entry wasn't a political move designated to make him to make people like him. To make him popular. He wasn't trying to become Israel's celebrated Messiah. That ship had sailed. That ship never existed. No, he entered Jerusalem as he did in order to prod the chief priests in part and the scribes into action. His hour had finally come. He had avoided it up to this point, but it had finally come. Jerusalem's evil leaders had some God-ordained work to do. They were about to crown Jesus as king by way of crucifixion, just as God had planned before the foundations of the world. By By entering into the capital city as he did, Jesus put into motion the events that he knew awaited him. The events that the Father sent him from heaven to earth to endure. Jesus came to die. He came to be crowned as the crucified king of Israel and the world. That's the first and fundamental reason Jesus entered Jerusalem as he did. But there's a second reason that's related. The second reason Jesus entered Jerusalem as he did on Palm Sunday was to fulfill Scripture. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem on a war horse, which would have whipped the political aspirations of the vast crowds into a a frenzy, an insurrectionist frenzy. Instead, he chooses to present himself 
as the king who comes in peace, in peace, lowly and riding on a donkey. (coughs) That's what Zechariah 9 verse 9 says. Now, if your Bibles are open to John 12, you can see that verse 15 is a quote, a paraphrase of the Old Testament. It's taken from Zechariah 9, 9. Maybe your, the cross-references in your Bible will, will show that. Maybe it's set off, indented, or something like that. And to understand its full significance, we need to turn to Zechariah 9, 9 and examine this verse in its wider context. So, with your Bibles, turn back to your, to your favorite book of the Bible, Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is in the Minor Prophets, toward the end of the Bible, uh, Toward the end of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament comes right before Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Turn to Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And you'll notice as we read Zechariah 9, 9 in a moment, that John doesn't quote the whole verse. He condenses it. He pulls bits and pieces out. He's not interested in quoting it verbatim. That often happens in the New Testament. He's interested in drawing our attention to the larger passage that surrounds Zechariah 9.9. And and when when you read an Old Testament quote in the New Testament, remember that the New Testament authors are pointing you back to the wider context of that Old Testament passage. It's not just the bit that you see, that you read, that they're wanting you to think about, that they're alluding to. It's kind of like a a footnote or a citation. So, you know, go back. They don't have space to to quote the whole thing. And so to understand the full force of this quote in John 12, 15, we need to bear in mind the wider context of the verse that John does quote or paraphrase. So John paraphrases Zechariah 9, 9. We'll read Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 11. And as, I, as we read it together, I'm going to draw your attention to three uh, brief points. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He is just and having right, uh, salvation. Lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. The first point that stands out is that the coming king is lowly. He's humble. He's different from the kings of the world. He's, his coming is associated with humility, gentleness, lowliness. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion, His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so the second point that stands out here in verse 10 is that the coming of the lowly king of Israel is associated with the cessation of war and the proclamation of peace to the nations. His reign of peace will extend to the whole world from sea to sea. Zechariah says, from the river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Okay, so for the third and most important point, look at verse 11. Zechariah 9, 11. 
As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The coming of the lowly and peaceable king is associated with the blood of the covenant. The blood of God's covenant. The blood that spells spiritual freedom for spiritual prisoners. According to Zechariah 9, 9-11, Israel's Messiah will be humble. He'll bring, he'll bring peace to the world. And the blood of His covenant will set prisoners free. The blood of the covenant will, will be how the Messiah brings peace to the nations and freedom to the prisoners. So do you see how John paraph- why and how John paraphrases Zechariah 9.9. And do you see that in paraphrasing this verse, he takes us back to Zechariah, but then ultimately takes us straight to the cross. To the cross of that king. To the cross of that Messiah. Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem to be crowned as Israel's celebrated king. Don't be deceived by the, the palm branches and the shouts of praise. Don't let the multitudes and the cries of Hosanna fool you. Jesus knew what was going on. He knew what would happen. He knew who, what, whose confession was just on the surface. Jesus entered Jerusalem to be crowned as Israel's crucified king. He came to die on a cross and to shed the blood of the covenant that sets prisoners free. Sets them free from sin's guilt and sin's grip. That's why Jesus came. Verse 16 says that the disciples had no clue what was going on. They had no clue what all this fanfare actually meant and what it was leading to and how it would climax. They didn't know the ending of the story. Why? Well, in part because they weren't interpreting Jesus' triumphal entry in light of Zechariah 9, verses 9 to 11. Verse 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that is, when Jesus was raised from the dead in glory, then they remembered that these things were written about Him in Zechariah 9. And that they had done these things to him with the triumphal entry. They knew what it all meant now and what it was leading up to. But until Jesus was glorified, the disciples didn't understand that Jesus had come to be a humble king who would accomplish worldwide peace and spiritual freedom for prisoners through his shed blood, which is the blood of the covenant. They were so filled, these disciples were so filled with messianic fervor that had been building for decades and centuries even. They were so filled with worldly messianic fervor, the fervor of the day, that they failed to see that Jesus came to Jerusalem to be crowned as the crucified king, not as the celebrated king. So let's summarize what we've discussed so far. 
The first and most basic reason Jesus entered Jerusalem as he did was to die. He came to earth and finally to Jerusalem this last time to be Israel's and mankind's crucified and glorified king. He could only become our glorified king by first becoming our crucified king. His path to glory was the road of suffering and death. His resurrection and glorification could only happen on the other side of the cross. And he knew that. The second reason and related reason that Jesus entered Jerusalem as he did was to fulfill Scripture. Zechariah 9 says that Israel's and mankind's king will be lowly, riding on a donkey. He'll be peaceable, extending peace to all nations. And he will provide the blood of the covenant that will set prisoners free. And so do you see how both of these reasons point and take us to the cross of Christ? Christ came to Jerusalem to die, and He came to die on a cross, on the cross. The blood of the covenant in Zechariah 9.11 was shed by Christ, and it was shed by Him on the cross. Now we need to turn our attention to when Jesus entered Jerusalem. When did Jesus enter Jerusalem? What's going on here in Jerusalem during this final and most important week of Jesus' mortal life? Well, it's Passover. Passover week. The most important reason why Jesus entered Jerusalem when He did was to show Himself to be our Passover Lamb. Our sacrificial Lamb. Jesus is the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And you'll notice the last word in the passage that we read today is world, or one of the last words uh, in the last phrase is the world. The world has gone after him. During the week of Passover, uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian estimates that over 250,000 lambs were brought up to Jerusalem and eventually slaughtered, sacrificed. Lambs were everywhere in the city during this week. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, He would have done so surrounded by the, the sights and the smells and the sounds of lambs. But, with all these lambs, there was only one lamb who could take away Israel's and the world's sins. Jesus was the greatest lamb of all. And in less than a week, when all the lambs are slain, Jesus Himself would be slain. During that week, the Lamb of God was killed. The capital L, Lamb of God, was killed. And He became the ultimate, the final, final Passover Lamb for you. If His blood is sprinkled on your heart, then the angel of spiritual death passes over you and you are saved from the wrath to come. 
That's, that's good news. If the blood of that lamb is sprinkled on your heart, then the angel of spiritual death passes over you and you are saved from the wrath to come. In the old covenant, the blood was sprinkled on the the doorpost, on the house. But in Hebrews 9 and 10, it says that the blood of the new covenant, which is the blood of Christ, the blood of this King, the blood of the Messiah, is sprinkled on the hearts of believers, cleansing us from a guilty conscience. This blood is greater and it goes deeper. It accomplishes more. It's the blood sacrifice to end all blood sacrifices. It's the blood sacrifice that can actually take care of our sin problem. Notice in the following verses how John weaves this story together to make plain that the kingship of Jesus isn't, it's, it's more than a mere local Jewish tribal kingship. It's bigger than that. It's greater than that. He isn't just Israel's king. He's the king of the whole world. Verses 17 to 19. Now we're back in John chapter 12. John 12, verses 17 to 19. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead, they bore witness. For this reason, the people, and and that's talking about the people from Jerusalem, different people, new people, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign, this raising of Lazarus. The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, you see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, this crowd continued to bear witness to the kingship of Jesus. But more people from Jerusalem also came to meet him and to sing his praises because they had heard what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus from the dead. And this causes the Pharisees to despair. (laughs) Nothing's working. The whole world's going after him. What what are we going to do? Doesn't seem to be anything that we can do. What an interesting thing for these adversaries of Jesus to say. The world is going after Jesus, the king. They're, they're confessing maybe more than they even know. Not just Jews, but also people from other nations are trusting in Jesus and following Him. And this is what we would expect to see because Jesus came to die for the world and He promised to draw all men, men from the whole world, to Himself. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him from the world shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his death and then resurrection, I will draw, I will draw all peoples, all men, to myself. It means people from everywhere. The Passover in the Old Testament was exclusively for Israel. It was a Jewish feast. You had to be circumcised. Or you had to be under the headship of a circumcised male to partake of Passover. But the greater Passover and the greater Passover lamb have come. Jesus is not just Israel's Passover. He's also the world's Passover lamb. He's also the king of Israel and the king of the world. He's the king and the Passover lamb. But before he can be glorified and exalted and placed on his throne at God's right hand, he must first become the sacrificial Passover lamb. And that's where he's headed during the rest of John's gospel. For the, for the entirety of John's gospel, from here to the end of the book, he's headed to the cross. And then eventually to his resurrection after that. The worldwide Passover lamb, who's also the king of heaven and earth, is headed to the cross from John 12 onward. The cross, you see, the cross will become the king's throne. So, is Jesus your Passover lamb? Have you received him and believed in his name, as John puts it in chapter 1? Has his blood, the blood of the covenant, freed you from the prison of sin? From its guilt and its grip? Has your imprisoned spirit been set free? Has the dungeon of darkness been flamed with the light of Christ? Have the chains fallen off so that your heart is free to love Christ? Have you arisen, gone forth, and followed Him, having been raised from the dead, from the spiritual dead, as, just as Lazarus was raised from the physical dead? Maybe you, like me, recognize your own story, in the fourth verse of Charles Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be, which we'll sing in a few minutes. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? The death of Christ as our Passover lamb is where you see the love of God in action. It's where you see how much God loves you. Can you say with Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was wounded or pierced for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The punishment that brought 
me peace was upon him. My punishment was on him. And by his stripes, I am healed. Is that central to your identity, to who you are, to your testimony, to how you view your life? Is that central? Is that the central thing? In the next verse in Isaiah 53, verse 6, it begins with the bad news. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But that same verse ends with the good news. The Lord has laid upon him, that is, on Christ, the sacrificial lamb, our substitutionary atonement. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You can't handle the guilt of your iniquities. You can't pay the penalty that you deserve, not just your sins deserve, but that you deserve because of your transgressions. You wouldn't even be able to pay for the one smallest sin that you've committed, whatever that would be. You have no resources, nothing to offer God in your salvation from sin. The only thing you bring to Jesus is your sinfulness and your sins you never would have been able to satisfy God's wrath against you, no matter how long you suffered in hell, in eternal punishment. In your helplessness, God sent His Son to earth to take your place. He sent Him to the cross to take your place and to save you. Christ was cursed by God on the cross so that you could be freed from the eternal curse by putting your trust in him by putting your trust in jesus you escape the eternal separation and curse from god that your sins would have earned you the coming king the coming messiah came to be crucified and he was crucified to pay for your sins god poured out his wrath on his son the Passover lamb, so that those who trust and obey him, those who trust and obey Jesus, those who trust and follow Jesus will escape that wrath forever. The final Passover lamb was the true Passover lamb. And his blood, the blood of the new covenant, releases you from your bondage your bondage to sin and death as you put your hope and your trust in Him alone. Hosanna. Salvation has come. Now, in closing, I want to talk about that word Hosanna. We say Hosanna, but do we know what it means other than when we're talking to Hosanna? In a few minutes... Right before we take communion, we're going to sing a song that we sing every week. And we're going to say, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But do you know what you're saying when you sing that song? When you say Hosanna. Well, the word Hosanna is only used a handful of times in the whole Bible. And it's really just four passages total. It occurs 
couple times in each uh, of the accounts of the triumphal entry in Matthew, Mark, and John. And it shows up once in the Old Testament. The one Old Testament verse where Hosanna appears is Psalm 118, verse 25. And I'd like you to turn there. It'll be the last time you have to turn. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 118, verse 25. The book of Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 118, verse 25. In Psalm 118, 25, the psalmist says to God, he says to Yahweh, Save now, I pray. Save now is the English translation of the Hebrew phrase, Hoshiana. Hoshiana. Do you hear how Hoshiana sounds like Hosanna? Okay. So Hoshiana is an imperative phrase. It's a phrase. It's two words with an imperative verb in it. It's a cry of desperation. But it's also somewhat of a command. Save now. I'm begging you, God. Save me right now. It's a plea. It's what you might say if someone pushes you into the deep end of the pool before you've learned how to swim. Help! Save me now! Please! It's a desperate cry, but it's also a command. You've got to do this. Hoshiana. But the meaning of Hoshiana changed over the centuries. It's, a, it's an interesting sort of progression. Gradually, don't know exactly how it all worked, but gradually it came to mean salvation has come. So it, it went from meaning you know, I need salvation, bring salvation to salvation of come. So instead of being a cry for help, it became a shout of hope and exultation. Instead of meaning save now, it developed the meaning salvation is here. Salvation has come. It's arrived. And so how did, how did this happen? I don't know exactly, but Psalm 18, I think, provides a clue. Look again at verse 25. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity or success. And look at the very next verse, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As soon as the psalmist cries for help in verse 25, Hoshiana, his prayer is answered in verse 26. Blessed, he, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord, blessed is he who has come, who is coming in the name of the Lord. So right when he calls on God to save, God is already coming. He's on his way. And so eventually, Hoshiana, or Hosanna, became associated more with the answer to the prayer than with the prayer, the plea itself. It originally meant saved now, but it came to mean God's salvation has come. So the word moved from a plea to a praise. From a cry to confidence. 
It used to be what you would say when you fell into the deep end of the pool before you could swim, but it came to be what you would say when you saw the, the strong lifeguard coming to save you. Salvation comes. Hosanna. Shouts of Hosanna come from the person whose heart is bubbling over because he sees the hope and joy and salvation coming. And he can't contain himself. So when we sing Hosanna in a few moments, I want you to make it personal. Think about what it means, about what you're saying. It's not just a plea and a cry. It's primarily your praise and your confidence. The son of David has come and he is coming. The king comes. If you're looking to Jesus and if you're putting all your faith in him, then he is your Passover lamb. His covenant blood has freed you from your imprisoned Spirit, your imprisonment to sin. He has saved you from all your guilt and fear and hopelessness. Salvation has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray and give thanks for this salvation. Thank you, God, for this good news. Thank you for this hope that we have. Thank you for coming to us in the person of Jesus. Help us to trust in him and to follow him and to stand firm in the faith that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.